1: Welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show, live from the OC Talk Radio studios in Costa Mesa, California. This business talk show airs live on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 4 p.m. and Thursdays at our special time of 3 p.m. All of our shows can be heard exclusively live here on OC, only community radio station, octalkradio.net. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, we encourage you to consider listening live during our broadcast times. The show is brought to you by our advertisers, Brandman University, Commercial Bank of California, Decision Toolbox, Smart Business Magazine, Succession Strategies, and our newest sponsor, Center Club. The goal for this show is to help you, our listening audience, of CEOs running middle market firms to improve your decision-making skills. Our first guest today is James Alampi. James is the founder and managing director of the Execution Maximizer Jim, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much. Good to be with you.
1: Jim, why don't we start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your professional background?
2: Well, after a college and Army stint, uh, I got into large public companies and ultimately had the privilege to lead three of them from a $325 million auto auction business to a billion and a half dollar chemical distribution business. And then I got tired of large, public, bureaucratic, red-tape-filled, slow-decision-making large companies, and I went and did three startups. And the most recent one, Lampion Associates, I started about 14 years ago, and we helped CEOs get from vision to execution and results.
1: Exciting. Why don't you tell us a little bit then about uh, your organization and help us to understand what makes your firm different.
2: I guess our our tagline would be vision without execution is hallucination. <laughs> so why in the world spend all this time doing strategic planning if you can't execute the the plan and the vision? And unfortunately, over the last fourteen years, we have found hundreds of companies, mid market companies, in particular that have great strategic plans. Trouble is, they're in a three ring binder gathering dust for about eleven months out of the year only to be pulled out on December 1st when somebody remembers it was a plan, and now there's only 31 days left to get it done. And, and, you know, in our view, if that's the way it's going to work, I wouldn't waste the time or spend the money doing strategic planning because as any good CEO knows, it's not about the plan and the binder. It's all about execution and getting results. So we help CEOs and executive teams work on their vision, but much more importantly, we teach them some habits and some processes to get from that vision to execution and results
1: you know jim it's interesting i hear you talk and in the spirit of full disclosure i have heard jim give a talk uh years ago at ron penland's renaissance executive forums session you were the featured speaker for one of his all-member meetings that must have been six years ago now that i uh, and i still there are some nuggets that i took away from your talk that i still share with people i always uh, attribute them to you but i uh I want to thank you for making an impact early in my career here in the CEO peer group field. My oh, pleasure. You know, uh, um, what I wanted to ask you was, it's amazing to me how much people can get done, either in your scenario, the last month of the year against what were supposed to be annual goals, or you know the last week of the month when they had these monthly goals that they were going to get done. If the organization could stay that focused on goal achievement and execution, for a prolonged period of time imagine how much further they could move the organization rather than a kind of a fire drill because the the deadline is fast approaching
2: isn't that interesting that you know we see executive teams all the time that when a business gets in trouble they seem to rally around things together and lo and behold their execution improves during the time that they're in a semi-crisis or crisis mode the problem is what happens when things get better and you get back to, quote, normal, and all of a sudden you don't retain that same spirit, that same alignment. You know, a lot of the parochial things go away during a crisis, and if you could just figure out a way to keep that same energy, intelligence, commitment, accountability during good times... Uh, lo and behold, the business would execute a lot better.
1: Yeah, and we're going to be talking here in a little bit about time wasters. I know that's an area that you've been focusing on, and we're going to talk about the execution maximizer as well. But we're going to take our first commercial break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. But, Jim, when we come back, and I'm speaking with Jim Alampey, Jim, if you could uh, share with us... Your guiding principle, in other words, of all the things that you've learned over your vast career, uh, have you developed kind of an overarching belief system or what we hear on Critical Mass Radio show, a guiding principle? So, ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere. We'll be back in less than three minutes after these words from our commercial sponsors.
0: commercial bank of california or cbc is a well-funded full-service bank located in the heart of orange county when it comes to safety and stability cbc has one of the highest levels of capital of any commercial bank ranked in the top six percent in the nation commercial bank of california was founded in 2003 by a group of orange county's finest entrepreneurs To this day, our bank is governed by our founders, including General William Lyon of William Lyon Homes, Alex Morello of the Morello Group, and Frank Willey of Fidelity National Financial, to name a few. In short, we're a bank founded, built, and run by entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs, Not every business in Orange County should be our customer. However, if your business is looking for a bank that can assist in finance, production, analytics, and risk management, there's no better bank to choose. To understand the true power of how Commercial Bank of California can help you achieve your goals, give us a call at 714-431-7000 or visit us on the web at www.combancal.com. Member FDIC.
3: Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714 560 9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience that's succession strategies.com
0: Richard Franzi is the author of two popular business books for CEOs his first book critical mass the 10 explosive powers of CEO peer groups was the first book ever written on the secret value of CEO peer groups his second book
1: Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. I'd like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download our show. as a podcast. You've downloaded over 11,000 shows during the last 30 days. We here at the program appreciate your continued and growing support. All of our shows can be heard live on radio station OC octalkradio.net or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher.com, and other business-oriented podcasting services. Jim Alampe is my guest. And Jim... Your firm is the Alampi Group, correct?
2: Alampian Associates.
1: Alampian correct. Associates, thank you. And I have the Execution Maximizer. So, can you help me to understand what the Execution Maximizer is for you?
2: Uh, about eight years ago, I created the Execution Maximizer, and that's the process we use when we work with CEOs and executive teams to help them figure out how to first create a vision, but more importantly, then get to execution and results.
1: Excellent. Okay. Thank you for that. Before the break, I said I was going to ask you to share with our audience your guiding principle. Would you be able to do that at this time, please?
2: If I had to pick one, I would guess that uh, every CEO, almost every CEO I've ever met, believes that they don't have enough work to do the things that they need to do. And the answer, as I know it in business, the only two answers are you've got to delegate more and you've got to set priorities. CEOs have to jealously protect their time so that they can lead the work on the business rather than spending so much of it in the business. It's not to say CEOs don't need to do both, but only the CEO can lead the company into the the on-the-business kind of strategic discussions, visioning, execution, and results. So the more a CEO doesn't delegate and gets pulled down to in-the-business stuff, nobody's driving the the on-the-business stuff. So that would be number one. Number two would be, As I said in my book, Great to Excellent, it's the execution. Um, A stop-doing list is more important than any to-do list, and we never think that way. We just keep piling on, doing more and more things, and rarely do we step back and ask our people and ourselves, what are the things I should stop doing? The things that we've done so long, we've sort of gotten into this trap that they're always the way we've done it. Who said so? Why don't we take a list in all three of the public companies i led, Every 90 days, we asked every employee, what's on your stop-doing list? What's that report that you spend two days a week creating for somebody that hasn't looked at it in three years? If we killed it tomorrow, nobody would even miss it. And if we really needed it, we could always recreate it again. So coming at it from the stop-doing side rather than the to-do side, I think, is pretty darn important. And last, I guess the, the one that uh, probably the seven most powerful words any CEO can ever speak. I don't know. What do you think?
1: <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but isn't it so true? It you is. Know, C- CEOs, are, people sort of assume that we have all the answers and we have Olympian wisdom to always make the right call. But the reality is, you know, A, we don't always, and B, you know, our job is not to give people answers. And when we give people answers, there's no learning and growth that takes place. When we ask them questions... I don't know. What do you think? All of a sudden, we open up a whole new uh, opportunity for input and different perspectives and things we may never have thought about.
1: And it takes the focus back and puts it where it should be rather than on the CEO. It puts it back on the team. Because I know when I was the president of Delphi, many times I felt that some people would come in and they would try to take the monkey off of their back and (laughs) put it on my back to see how I dealt with it. And that question, while it's the right question for all the right reasons, it also sort of sets a barrier against people giving you the stuff that they don't want to deal with or can't deal with. Exactly. All right. One of your articles talks about business time wasters, workplace time wasters that steal your day. Can you share from your perspective what your research shows as far as the five biggest time wasters?
2: Well, coming at this as a CEO, the the things that, you know, used to just bog me down until I learned uh, not to do them and not to get caught up in them, number one is you get invited to every meeting under the sun, and the reality is you don't need to be in every meeting. In fact, it's maybe better not to be in every meeting. You know, I used to, when I finally wised up, at some point I used to get up and walk out of meetings in the middle when I felt that I had been misinvited and I didn't need to be there. Uh, I'd also often send one of my subordinate executives and let them come back to me and give me an update on what took place in the meeting. So you know, CEOs really need to jealously protect how much time they spend in which meetings and make sure they only attend the right ones. Right. Now, the second part of that meeting thing that just drives me crazy and a lot of people is we have gotten into this horrible PowerPoint slide trap where I've watched clients uh, with junior managers who walk in with a 50-slide presentation. You just don't have time as a CEO or a senior executive to sit and watch these uh, presentations that are just on and on and on with probably much more information you need to have. I came up finally with a Lampy's Rule of Five, and it was three simple things that I put into place for every meeting that I would sit in where somebody had to give a presentation If you were going to present to the executive team, you had to send out your slides or whatever materials you were going to present five days in advance so everybody could read it ahead of time. Worst thing in the world is for CEOs and executives to be reading slides as they're listening to the presenter. The whole point of a meeting ought to be collective intelligence and brainstorming and questions, not just reading the slides that I could have read ahead of time. Number two rule of fives is no more than five slides in any presentation. Number three rule is no more than five bullet points on any slide. And number four rule is if you ever start reading the slides to us, you'll be excused from the meeting because that's an insult. We already have read the slides. We've promised to read them ahead of the meeting. Your job is not to just read what's on the slide because that intimates that we don't know how to read, and that's ridiculous. So, you know, really tightening up the use of PowerPoint presentations so they play the right role in meetings, not just, you know, overwhelming people with information.
1: You know, you made the, the point.
2: stop-doing list, I think, is a critical one. That's the third one so that we don't fall into traps. So the things we did a year ago may have been appropriate then, but we need to constantly challenge ourselves. Do I still need the same depth or the same frequency that I did a year ago? And we ought to constantly be challenging ourselves in that area. The fourth one is we tend to, as CEOs, try to fix all of the C players in the world. You know, A, B, C players, the whole top grading process with regard to our people that Brad Smart created. Well, you know, A players are our superstars and B players are the solid core of good performers and C players are defined as people who can't be successful in the current job. It's amazing how much time CEOs spend trying to fix all their C players. It's almost like a pride thing. By golly, if I put enough effort into it, I, I can fix that C player. There is almost no ROI, return on investment, in spending our time trying to fix C players in their current job. The reason they're a C player usually is because the job has outgrown them over time, and the only way to fix them is move them into a smaller, less complex role or position. But CEOs, just there's an ego thing, I can fix anybody, and by goodness, if I put enough time and effort into it, I can make that C player become a B player. You know, that rarely happens, number one, and there's a much greater return on our time if we help B players become A players. That's where we ought to be spending our time. Right. And last, um, we see many, many mid-market entrepreneurial companies that start thinking that technology systems are the solution in their company. Rarely are they a solution to anything. You know, the people and the processes are what really make the difference. Technology systems are enablers to help that go better when we implement them. And it's one of the things that scares me the most when I find a mid-market company CEO who delegates a big technology project to somebody in the technology arena These are not technology projects. I don't care whether it's a CRM system or an ERP system. The reason that they are so high cost and high risk is they are change management systems or projects. We're changing the way people take care of our customers, the way they interface with each other. And, of course, while people are going through these big implementations, everybody's working on workarounds. They're trying to learn the new system. Who's taking care of our customers while we're implementing these systems? and most mid-market companies unfortunately can't afford a fully experienced CIO who's do, who's done multiple system integration projects before. So we're playing you bet the company oftentimes when mid-market companies enter the technology enablement stage.
1: Excellent. Well, wow, those are those are worth the price of admission, ladies and gentlemen, those five key time wasters and thoughts. Jim if someone is interested in learning more about you, your firm, how you can help CEOs get execution into their business on a regular and consistent basis, how do they find you online?
2: Uh, two ways. The website for the Execution Maximizer that talks about the process is uh, www.theexecutionmaximizer.com. And if you're just interested in information on me and kind of my background on what I do, uh, www.alampy.com
1: Well, I want to thank you for being on the program. I had other questions that I would thought I could get to today, but um, <laughs> we're going to have to have you back on another time so that I can, because I also wanted to touch on some of the things I learned from you when you gave the presentation to the Renaissance uh-huh. Executive Forums group. So uh, would you come back on the program in the future, Jim? Uh, you betcha. Alright, thank you for your time. I appreciate you being a guest on our program. Hey, thanks so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take our second commercial break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. When we come back, Joan Gladstone, who is president and CEO of Gladstone International, will be my second guest. I have a number of questions that I want to get to with uh, with Joan as well. She's Her firm is an international public relations firm that provides crisis management training and solutions to CEOs of middle market companies. As the president and CEO, Joan talks about coaching business leaders effectively and how she managed her first major crisis back in 1994 right here in Orange County, California. Should be an interesting and lively conversation with Joan Gladstone. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in about three minutes here on Critical Mass Radio Show. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries,
4: we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information.
5: If you are an Orange County CEO or a business owner, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have had these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions through the power of peer learning. These are groups of peers who are running businesses just like you. CEO Peer Groups provides a great sounding board to test fresh ideas and new concepts, review your strategic plans and tactical goals, and present issues and opportunities for a critical discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, and improved business results. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn about our CEO peer groups. CEO peer groups is a registered trademark of Critical Mass for Business.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. Our advertising demographic is 98% business owners and executives who listen to learn from the experiences of our guests. If your firm is interested in reaching these top decision makers, then advertising on our radio show may be the answer. Each month, our sponsors gain valuable exposure through their support of our program. We delivered over 30,000 highly targeted sponsor impressions last month. To learn more, contact Rose Chamora at 951-951. 515-4661 that's 951-515-4661 all of our shows can be found on our website critical mass for business all right our second guest is joan gladstone as i said before the break she's president and ceo of gladstone international joan welcome to the show thank you rick it's nice to have you here thank you let's start by asking you just to share a little bit about your professional background with our audience
6: well, I've been in public relations my whole career. That was my major in college. And I've worked for many different companies, nonprofits, public sector before founding my firm about 25 years ago.
1: Why did you start your own firm, Joan?
6: Always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought, well, I've had a lot of experience. By that point, I had worked for others for about 15 years. And my dad was an entrepreneur, and he always encouraged me, and so the time was finally right.
1: Okay, so let's talk about your firm, Gladstone International. What is it that you do? I teased a little bit about that before the break, but give us in your own words. And also, why do clients choose to work with you? What makes you different?
6: We focus exclusively on crisis communications. What does that mean? Crisis planning, crisis counseling, and executive media training we've had that focus for about twenty years now so clients would choose us because it is a very very specialized field
1: yeah and they know when they need it huh and you know the audience that listens generally are CEOs of middle market companies and we define middle market as five to a hundred million and uh, in those whenever there's a crisis that would happen with that type of business having run a seventy million dollar Business, unfortunately, that had our fair share of crisis. Nothing that made the media, but with our client population, right, right, yeah, thank (laughs) God. The biggest crisis we had is that our parent company filed for bankruptcy, and then that that really was that was more of a crisis than I had anticipated. Having never gone through a running a business when you're bankrupt, (laughs) it changes everything, right? We probably could have used some training on how to manage the message with our clients and our supply base and it was really something very different. But anyway, they're probably wondering, how do I know in advance that, that it's going to be a crisis or it, are you accustomed to being called in because it's happened and you've got to help them to sort of figure out the right path forward?
6: Great question. When I started doing this kind of work, I would say the majority of calls that came in were something's happened. We've been hit by a lawsuit, we had negative publicity, What can you do to help us do damage control, which is after the fact? But the great trend that I see now is that so many CEOs are becoming aware Hmm. of the value of calling someone like me while they see the warning signs that something might go public. Product recall, an issue that's happening internally, an unhappy employee, an executive who left the company so there are so many different issues that are happening that could go public, why not be prepared? And that's a really great trend that I'm so happy to see.
1: Yeah, that is. That, that uh, you know, I th- so that's led to a couple of the questions can I can I ask you them? Of can, we're going off script here a little bit right I in the beginning it. of the interval. Jill, Even so, better. <laughs> all right, great. Um, has social media played any role in a sensitivity to CEOs of middle market companies to the fact that they may have a crisis on their hands just because of the ability for their employee population to communicate so easily with their customers and constituents?
6: Yes. Matter of fact, last week I did a series of CEO workshops, and that was the number one question on their minds because you have a different demographic. Someone who founded a business, run the business very successfully, and then all of a sudden they're coping with Social media. So that's been probably the most profound change in what I've seen from the standpoint that nothing is private. Right. The minute someone knows information, they have their own media. Right. It's no longer the newspapers, radio, television. It's what we call citizen journalists, people who have their own Facebook, Twitter, blogs. And so that's probably the most critical dynamic that we're having to manage with a crisis situation
1: right and and um and the major media and local media can pick up social media feeds as well it's surprising to me how many people are watching twitter feeds etc on companies where they know employees work there one of the other areas which i'd like to just ask you about is um the area of cyber fraud And, you know, I've done a couple seminars here in Orange County for CEOs of middle market companies about how there really are targets of cyber fraud, and they don't, you know, the target makes the news. But they have still the same financial responsibilities, legal responsibilities for protecting that information, and that can be very damaging to a middle market company if you've got to notify all your clients that their information was compromised, and it can really damage your brand, can't it?
6: Most definitely, and that's actually one of the areas that is on the forefront of many CEOs' minds now. When we look at doing crisis planning, we look at vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. We look at where they might experience risk, so the cyber hacking, data breach, cyber fraud, all those different terms are one of the most difficult because some of this is coming from other countries. Right. And so being able to have robust systems, but even so, you can't predict everything and you can't control everything. So making sure in the planning that there is a process for educating the public when you know something has occurred and not waiting, because that's really the issue. People want to know one thing. When did you know it? Right. And then they want to know, what are you doing about it? So if the when question is, well, we knew about it a month ago, that doesn't exactly create loyalty. Right. So
1: We're suspicious by that, right? We're
6: suspicious, and the whole goal (laughs) is to maintain a trusting relationship with all of our stakeholders, and we do that by being open Mm -hmm. about this kind of information.
1: So I'm speaking with Joan Gladstone. She is the president and CEO of Gladstone International. Uh, is it your experience and advice that CEOs of middle market companies should spend time planning crisis management communications and the process, even though they may think, it'll never happen to me, but it's sort of like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, Joan? Is thats that... Is that
6: it is. It's kind of the analogy I use is a burglar alarm. When do most people install a burglar alarm on their mm. home or their business after a burglary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they never want to go through that again. Right. So again the wonderful thing that I'm seeing is more and more CEOs are saying, we have all kinds of risk prevention programs, we have insurance companies, we have all of these emergency response programs. What's missing is this crisis communications component. So I either create that for them or more often They create it, and I can do kind of a vulnerabilities assessment to say you're in great shape. All you have to do is add the social media component, or you've got a lot of issues. You don't know who's on your team. You don't know who's on first. You don't know who's going to manage the crisis. And that is really a great trend that I'm seeing now in business.
1: Is it your professional experience that if there is an issue that requires a crisis management team and communication to the marketplace, that the leader, the CEO, president, owner, whatever, the managing director, whatever the title of the boss is, that that should be the person that's the face of the company in presenting the, the crisis communication message to the marketplace?
6: Not always. Okay. This is one of the big debates going on right now. The conventional wisdom has been the bigger the crisis and the broader the imp- impact on consumers, the more the CEO should step out in front but not all CEOs are the right choice. I think of the BP oil spill. Oh, I was
1: just thinking of Tony right? whatever yeah. Whatever. Tony
6: Hayward. Okay, thank you. And, you know, <laughs> his bloopers are legend now. Right. And one of the most famous that was repeated over and over again was, I'd like my life back.
1: Exactly. Oh, wow, you're like psychic.
6: Well, I use that one a lot. Okay. And so the thought is that it's not about those affected. It's about him and his life right i would have loved to have seen an engineer a very very highly placed engineer at bp talking about how they were how they were going to fix the broken pipe on the bed of the sea right so yes if the ceo is the right personality and can gain trust is a good spokesperson doesn't get flustered
2: Mm -hmm.
6: by a lot of media That might be the right solution, but there are other times where there might be a lawsuit. I dealt with a hoax, a product hoax. Hmm. You might not want to put the CEO out in front to dignify something that was a hoax or other issue by a disgruntled member of the public.
1: Right, because once the impression has been formed in the public's mind, it's really hard to undo that, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it takes on a life of its own. And then, like we talked earlier, social media just buries you, right? Then YouTube puts up characters of you, and it just it just becomes a running joke. And hopefully none of the listening audience are ever going to have an issue that would make a sketch on Saturday Night Live. But, right, it could just become, it, it defines your career.
6: Well, this hoax actually was a joke on Conan O'Brien that I mentioned <laughs> Luckily, they didn't mention the name of the restaurant that was involved. But you raise a really good point, Rick, about social media. It's not something we should be afraid of like it's going to be done to us. Savvy companies are harnessing the power of social media. Just right. today, I read that the president of GM did a YouTube apology for the issues that they've been having. So YouTube videos and other methods of communicating through social media are really now on the forefront, so we shouldn't be afraid of harnessing that power.
1: Wow, so she's a new CEO, and it didn't happen on my watch, but yet she owns it, and her response to it is going to maybe define her career for a bit, right? I mean, and how she leads this GM to respond to it. This feels very bad for GM, and, you know, people are going to... I mean, there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork because GM such a large corporation, but... Uh, it'll be interesting to see her leadership style and how they manage through it. It's
6: getting off to a good start.
1: Okay, great. I'm talking with Joan Gladstone, and we're going to take our... Fr- oh, Sorry, she's president and CEO of Gladstone International. I've said that before, but I can never say that too often. And we're going to take our third and final commercial break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. Joan, when we come back, I'm going to ask you of all the things you've experienced and learned in business, if you have a guiding principle for how you're leading and growing your firm. Okay. All right, we'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go anywhere. We'll see you in three minutes.
7: There's something uniquely positive about the word up. When things are good, things are looking up. When you want to go fast, you speed up. And when you're really cheering, you stand up. So when you want to move up, what do you do? Well, when it comes to getting your bachelor's degree or master's degree, there's one university that stacks up better than virtually everyone else. And that university is Brandman. Brandman University is ranked by U.S. News & World Report as one of the nation's top ten universities for online bachelor's programs. And it ranked best in the state of California. Brandman also received top honors from U.S. News and World Report for our online graduate programs in business and education. Plus, our programs are available on ground at more than 25 convenient campuses. So to wrap things up, we recommend you look us up at brandman.edu. That's brandman.edu. And find out how to move up like never before. Brandman University. Move up.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. I'd like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download our show as a podcast. You've downloaded over 11,000 shows during the last 30 days. We here at the program appreciate your continued and growing support. All of our shows can be heard live here on radio station octalkradio.net or rebroadcast anytime from Apple iTunes, Stitcher.com, and other business-oriented podcasting services. All right, let's return to the interview with Joan Gladstone. She is president and CEO and founder, a lot of titles, of Gladstone International. Uh, Before the break, I was going to ask you to share your guiding principle. Joan, would you do that now, please?
6: I'd be happy to. I think for me, the most important principle is integrity. And for me, when I work with organizations who are dealing with brewing crises or crises that have already hit, it's... Are they going to be receptive to my counseling, and will they be willing to work with ethics and integrity? Because mm. that is everything in business; it's everything in life. And if you don't go along in that direction, you're not going to be in business very long. So that's my philosophy.
1: That's excellent. Thank you very much for sharing that. You know, I, if if we haven't in this country haven't learned, who've been around long enough to remember Watergate, uh, I do. It's not the act; it's the cover-up. If that didn't make—I mean, now it is—and uh, we don't do politics here, but I mean, people will look at the situation and judge it based on the facts. It, but afterwards, if you—if you, if you don't—if you're not with integrity and you're really—if you're trying to run a game or shelter them from the truth, uh, the truth is going to find its way to get out.
0: People
6: have a remarkable capacity to forgive mm. if they sense that the apology is sincere. But if they feel as if you've been duplicitous and you've covered up or tried to hide the mistake, especially if the impact is on public health and safety, then the tolerance is gone Hmm. and the consumers are probably gone too.
1: It's amazing how many public figures, uh, either through social media or just their own foolish behavior, everybody has a camera now who has a phone, I mean, you know, whatever. I don't know how these guys and ladies think they can behave in a way that's different than their managed brand. But it, 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 it it's just, I don't know. I, I saw a thing on the guy from Toronto again this weekend. Rob I, Ford. I just feel so, I don't know. Part of me just feels so bad for the poor don't guy. Don't feel
6: sorry for him.
1: <laughs> he, he looks like a really good guy in some ways. It'd be probably fun to go out and have a drink with on a Saturday night. But that's neither here nor there. I'm talking with Joan Gladstone, president and CEO of Gladstone International. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit off air about the 1994 Bankruptcy of Orange County, that was your first crisis management situation. Can you tell us how you handled that situation?
6: That was my first and probably the biggest I've had in 20 years. So what the problem was with that was the county was investing in risky investments, junk bonds and things of that nature. So the market tanked. We got involved about a week prior to the county filing for bankruptcy, And, Rick, I had never handled anything of this magnitude in my life. So we became the one phone call that the media could make. The county was not taking any calls from the media because they were trying to manage the crisis and get funding. At that time, it was, believe me, this is going to sound crazy, a $1.7 billion paper loss. They had not yet filed for bankruptcy, but that was the size and magnitude of the loss in the county's investment fund. So they were dealing with the crisis, and we, my office, was handling all of the incoming calls, and these were calls from media outlets all over the world. So never having done anything like this, I sort of had to invent a process on the fly. And it was kind of a triage. At that time, I had 12 employees. Everyone had a role. Some staff took calls. Some staff provided the answers. I was dealing with the county. What do we say? It was crazy. But I'm also very proud of the work that we did because we were able to provide information to the media. And also what some people don't remember, there were about 200 cities and public agencies that had invested in the county's fund. They were starving for information. They had no information. So we became almost a news bureau where any agency could call me and I would give them whatever information I could. I even ended up doing a daily news brief sheet Mm -hmm. that I would send out so that people could be kept informed. When the county filed for bankruptcy, they hired a bankruptcy attorney and a firm that specialized in bankruptcy public relations. After that, everything in my firm was totally different. We went from doing traditional PR to doing only crisis and issues management.
1: Can can you share with us how you were successful in, so in representing Orange County during that bankruptcy? I mean, what happened that you got the call?
6: I had worked for the county some years before, okay. so they knew who I was. I don't know if they called anyone else, but they did call me, and it was kind of funny, Rick, I was telling you at the break that I'm in my office one day, and my assistant says, uh, there's a Mr. Robert Citron on the phone for you. And the first thought I had was... Why is he calling me? I know I paid my property tax.
1: <laughs> Boy, that's a high-level call just for your property tax, even if you have enough. You guys are serious about our money.
6: <laughs> but, you know, the one thing I will say in the aftermath of the bankruptcy, I never want to work on a situation ever like that again where it's happened and there's nothing mm. productive that I can do or anyone who does crisis management can do to change the outcome. Now when I work with CEOs who call before the crisis hits, many times we can have a positive impact, and sometimes we do plans and strategies that never see the light of day because they never went public, and that is great success.
1: I can't imagine you're thinking, I'm putting myself in my audience's shoes, that a CEO would be able to be as open-minded and thoughtful about the scenarios and how they would respond when they're in the heat of the battle as opposed to scenario planning in advance, even if it's, as long as it hasn't touched your customers and the public yet, y- you probably are a little more clear-headed. I have to believe it gets a, you know, it takes on a life of its own. Like you said, when the phone calls are coming in and now it's emails and all this other way that people are starving for information, it, it must feel very hard to be able to craft the best strategy at in that moment.
6: Well, to be fair, most CEOs would have a team, and that's one of the first things we do in our planning Who is on your crisis team so that the burden doesn't fall only on the CEO's shoulders? But the one point that just came to mind as you were talking, what CEOs oftentimes don't realize is that they may be the spokesperson, not only to the media, but to their shareholders, to their boards of directors, to their employees, to the community. And so their role as communicators, that might consume... 110% One hundred and ten percent of their time. So, being able to do the operational side of it would normally fall to others.
1: Right. You know uh, that that's so true because I I can remember uh, lawsuits. It's the same thing when a company gets sued. Many times the CEO gets lost to getting briefed on what's going on and and all of a sudden you're not able to do your normal day job and and it really is an alternate universe you know I, i said many of the companies that are listening maybe would never make the media but then i think the issues that have happened in west virginia with the water and the potential for pollution those companies as far as i can tell are not i mean they're middle market companies for the large part and they're now in the middle of what seems to be a national media frenzy about what did, what happened and what didn't happen? That's that's got to be very taxing and stressful for them as well.
6: Any time an organization has one customer, one employee, one stakeholder, the chances are very high they're risking damage mm-hmm. from negative publicity.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yes, and um, at the end of the day, it's your brand. You can work so hard to build your brand, and then one moment, as we said earlier, can really It'd be hard. It's hard to recover from those if you don't. An ounce of prevention, ladies and gentlemen, is worth a pound of cure. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of uh, of crisis in that way. I'm wondering, are there other types of? Is there another definition for crisis management that isn't that you work on, Joan? That isn't necessarily in the vein of what we've covered already whether it's a an issue with a spill or a county bankruptcy or cyber fraud or or the social media issues but is there anything else that our CEOs should be we've had a pretty thoughtful conversation so far but have i missed asking you about anything else that you've worked with any of your clients on that should allow at least the ceos that are listening to think about areas of risk
6: i think when I do a lot of work with risk managers and attorneys, so sometimes I think I am one. So I'm I think sorry what, to hear uh, that <laughs> <laughs> they're some of my best friends okay, I'm and just clients. Kidding.
1: I love them all. Too. Uh,
6: so I think what what any organization should do when they're thinking about this, if they say, you know, are we really prepared? They ought to sit down with their management team and use a whiteboard or a flip chart or whatever, and start lining out all the possible crises that could happen to them or that they might prompt. And they will be shocked. I go through this exercise with every CEO group that Mm. I talk to, and they come up with one or two or three things. But the list I even have one in front of me is very, very it long. is. I can see it. And it's unique to each organization, depending upon what they do, product or service. So I think it's a great exercise for the audience to try.
1: You know, what? I guess what I was leading to as well is um, we did not have a uh, communications plan in case of an emergency uh, I was the president of Delphi, and during that time there were some pretty significant fires in Southern California to the point where companies were being affected as far as workforce and, and how, how do you get people home and all that. And then we started thinking, well, what happens if a big earthquake ever happened? Do we have a proper communication strategy for our employees and for our clients? I mean, is that work that you your firm does? or? It's very interesting.
6: In all the 20 years I've been doing this, I have not worked on one natural disaster and maybe that's fortunate that there haven't been that many, but most big organizations have an emergency response plan that's from the operational point of view. And it means a lot of collaboration with emergency responders, right. police and fire and other agencies. So the, the area of vulnerability isn't so much how would we respond in a natural disaster because the public understands you didn't cause the disaster you'll be judged by how well you managed the aftermath and protected your people. So the area that I work in and where I think there's more that gray area okay. is when it's a crisis that's caused by some in inadvertent action by you or some action by somebody outside the organization.
1: Because mm-hmm. I, I think at the end of the day, regardless of what the crisis is, the, the pr- improper response from a CEO is, I had no idea. I wasn't aware this was even a risk. It never occurred to me. Because I think, I'm speaking my own opinion here, but I think the public expects the boss to take the responsibility for the organization, right?
6: Yes, but you know, you raised something interesting, Rick, that one of the hardest things for an executive to say is, I didn't know. And I'm looking into it
1: uh-huh.
6: or we're sorry for the experience and we're going to get to the bottom of it because every time I open the paper or listen to the radio or watch TV, there's some crisis I never would have dreamed of in a million years. Right. And so we can always anticipate every single thing that's going to happen to us. Right. It's really more the attitude and I will sum it up in one word and that's empathy. If a CEO and their management team can demonstrate that they truly care about the impacts on people, they'll be fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. What a great thought that we can wrap up the show with then, Joan. Uh, Joan, I want to ask you, if someone wants to learn more about you or your firm, Gladstone International, how do they find you online?
6: Thank you. It's easy. The website is GladstonePR.com. I have a blog on the site that people can subscribe to for crisis evaluations and tips.
1: Oh great. Well, I'm going to subscribe to that blog. Uh, RSS <laughs> feeds are wonderful, aren't they? They get it's wonderful. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say first of all, thank you for being a friend of the program, Joan. Welcome to our Critical Mass community. I've thoroughly enjoyed your time with us today.
6: Thank you. It's been fun being here.
1: Great. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed both of the interviews that we had here today on the radio program. You no, know, the goal for this show is to help you, our audience of CEOs running middle market firms, to improve your decision-making skills. And certainly in this area of crisis management and crisis preparedness, I think you have some things to think about and hopefully talk to your team about just to verify that what you have in place is robust enough to support your ever-growing firms, ladies and gentlemen. The show is brought to you by our advertisers, Brandman University, Commercial Bank of California, Decision Toolbox, Smart Business Magazine, Succession Strategies, and Center Club of Costa Mesa. Our engineer for today's show is Paul Roberts. Our producer is Crystal Nunley. Our guest coordinator is Kathleen Shepard. Our social media manager is Asia Celestino. Our live events coordinator is Melissa Padani. Our VP of sales is Rose Chamora. And I'm your host, Rick Francie If you'd like to learn more about Critical Mass for Business or you want to refer a future guest or advertise, please visit our website, Critical Mass for Business. Until the next show, I hope all of your decisions will move your company in a positive direction.
0: You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show. Focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi.